it works. You know what I'm saying? These kids are primed to yeah. learn through hip hop. And the most important thing that I need to, to, to address is it's not about confidence because we want them to, to end with confidence, but it's about getting comfortable. Confidence comes later. It's about confidence in your community. It's about uh-huh. confidence in your ability to just be you. And that's that awkwardness. That's what I like teaching. Like, this is a space of play. This is a space yeah. of you know, not taking yourself so seriously. And for a lot of these kids who grow up in the hood, like, number one, they need to relax. Like, 30% of kids in Oakland have been diagnosed with PTSD, which is a higher rate than vets coming back from war. Inform, inspire, and evolve. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind. Join host Lindsay Simons in a friendly conversation about contributing to good as we bring together community, positivity, and energy to the business of generosity. Welcome your host, Lindsay Simons. Hi, this is Lindsay, your host of the Creating Community for Good podcast, Shamanism, Racism, and the Hip-Hop Culture by James W. Perkinson. This book was the foundation of a class I took in undergrad at University of Denver. Professor Perkinson, if you're listening to this podcast, I want to thank you. You deepened my passion for social justice in a big way. You helped me to understand systemic racism through housing and credit policies, the power of the corporate dollar, and of course, religion. Among others, we studied W.E.B. Du Bois, Nelson George, Tupac Shakur, Biggie Smalls, and many others. As I use my mic and this podcast to play around with various modalities, philosophies, strategies, and ways that people create community for good, in this episode, I recognize and celebrate an organization that amplifies the mic for all. It's called Hip Hop for Change. Did you know that 90% of the music market is controlled by three corporations? That's Sony Music Group, Universal Group, and the Warner Music Group. Did you know that 80% of hip hop consumers are based on white male listeners ages 13 to 34? Well, those two factors alone drive the representation of the voice of hip-hop artists. Unfortunately, the corporate media presents hip-hop music and culture as a grotesque array of negative stereotypes that embrace criminality, sexism, homophobia, gross materialism, and domination culture. These false representations of the Black culture and hip-hop are dangerous at best. My guest is Kafri J, the founder of Hip Hop for Change. This episode debunks myths, inspires hopes, and illuminates circumstances. He even teaches me how to free flow, so listen on for that. Kafri is an abundantly kind, thoughtful, playful, heartfelt, and outspoken person. After breaking records as a Greenpeace street advocate, he learned a thing or two about petitioning, connecting, and organizing, and his experiences really shine through. He's merged activism and expressive cultural arts with his passions and created Hip Hop for Change. This is an organization that's dedicated to culture and education and advocating for social justice, healthy expressions, and positive identity. He's worked with over 22,000 youth, K-12, through to create healthier places for children to foster their creativity and positive identity. He's super open to collaboration and advancing the mission of 
change. So if you're interested in that after you listen to this, be sure to reach out to Coffrey J at Hip Hop for Change. Hip Hop for Change boldly states that the corporate co-optation of hip hop culture has created a situation where the community's platform for self-expression has been eclipsed and replaced with a limited, insulting narrative that affects our understanding of what true hip hop is and what it can be. Our children have grown accustomed to being consumers of an appropriated version of hip hop that is devoid of its roots. This activist emphasizes that hip hop is for everyone. It's fundamentally about peace, love, unity, and having fun. The essence of his work is to offer affirmation and self-love, and they do that by giving the microphone to as many people as possible. Coffrey J is pretty freaking impressive. He has presented at TEDx, and he's been flown around the country to present and facilitate workshops of this ilk. If you're a hip-hop head, then you'd be impressed to know he shared the stage with Rakim, Method Man, Dead Prez, Hieroglyphics, The Far Side, Talib Kweli, and many more. Kafri has also used his art as a political tool and performed at the 2010 Democratic National Convention. He's also performed at the Kaiser 2018 Health and Equity Summit and the 2015 and 16 March on Monsanto, just to name a few. All of this and more is why Coffrey's work has recently been recognized by the Zellerbach Family Foundation and the San Francisco Symphony, winning both the 2020 William J. Zellerbach Award for Social Change and the Symphony's 2020 Ellen Magnum Newman Award for the Outstanding Arts Organization. Coffrey has graced Mother Jones, The Daily Cause, San Francisco Chronicle, Oakland Tribune, Pop Vulture Magazine, and music bailout. His work has been featured on CBS News, the Black News Network, NBC Bay Area, and PBS News Hour. So you can see why I was so excited to grab an hour of his time and shout out to his little baby who was in the background playing during these COVID times. You can hear her voice a little bit as well. So forgive us for the audio, but she's a sweetheart. In the next hour, you're going to hear some raw and progressive conversations really helping us to understand what is going on with hip hop and where is racism in the mix of it all? Why do we have certain perspectives about certain people based on the representation that we have in the media? So he helps to debunk some of that and talk about his passion and theories for change. We also talk about how COVID has impacted his organization, of course, and why he's calling on angels to support this effort. So from a fundraising and ethics standpoint, hip hop for change is pretty interesting as well in that they do not accept corporate funding. So think back to the recent episode with Eric Heininger, where we discussed gift acceptance policies and ethics. Coffrey is one who really walks the talk, and I love that about him. As we celebrate how hip hop can be a source of healing, celebration, and love, I also want to shout out to Mayor Curry for her work at dance and release parties. So join Mayor as she works to advance women of color and support hip hop. Enough said. Let's get into the conversation with Coffrey J of Hip Hop for Change. I really enjoyed this episode and I hope you do as well. Welcome to Creating Community for Good, a podcast dedicated to philanthropy, the love of humankind, with the intention to inform, inspire, and evolve. Let's go. So, Coffrey, give us your pitch. Like, what is Hip Hop for Change all about? Yeah, I mean, straight up, to be quite honest, I think a lot of people think of hip hop, they think of music. But hip hop is not music. Hip hop is my culture. Hip hop is how I engage with the world. It's how I walk. You can see it. It's how I talk. 
you know, it's my vernacular. It's the terminology we use to pass information in our community. It's how I dress. I look hip hop, right? You know what I'm saying? It's how I dance. It's how I paint. It's how I engage in the world. So when you look at hip hop through that context, it's kind of, you know, you kind of see that three corporations owning 90% of the means of producing hip hop narratives is not really a healthy thing to be happening. And that, that all happened through the 96 Telecommunications Act signed by Bill Clinton, which allowed for the corporate consolidation of media. And so now we've got three companies owning 90% of the depiction of my culture. And the problem is, is the community hip hop comes from is not rich. So if you have a $7 billion industry that's putting up depictions of hip hop and black and brown culture as well, they're not going to make money from our community, right? They're going to make money from people who have money. Right now, about 70% of hip hop is bought by suburban white men between 18 and 24. Mm-hmm. Those kids, they buy what they believe, right? Mm-hmm. And now, you know, a lot of people eat Taco Bell, right? But nobody thinks that Taco Bell is Mexican culture. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they totally get that paradigm. But I think historically, since birth of a nation, people have been believing representations of black and brown people in the media that aren't created by black and brown people. Now, I think people get it twisted because they say, oh, well, aren't those rappers rapping about that stuff? Well, very small percentage of hip hop community raps about objectifying women and shooting people up like, no, we're real people. Most of our rappers talk about our lives. Right. Yeah. But I I think when you are selling anything in America, you sell that through sex, drugs and violence. It's pervasive in even Carl's Jr. commercials. Right. (laughs) All my children and heavy metal and whatever. It's just what people sell. But when you are only investing in the small portion of narratives that is pathological, but coupled with a brown face, that's really bad. It's bad because we're, we're more segregated than we've ever been in this nation's history. And right now, 70% of white people report not having a person of color for a friend. So that doesn't mean they stop having opinions about people like me. You know, when mm-hmm. I walk down the street, I'm passing people in Berkeley and Hayes and Octavia in San Francisco, and people grab their babies. They grab their babies as they walk past me. I don't think I look scary, but because I have to deal with it some way, I, I tell people nowadays, I don't eat babies, I'm full, right? <laughs> I'm full. <laughs> and it kind of wakes them up, you know, but I have to say something. But my question is, where does this it's so, so deeply ingrained response that it's like literally a, a, a reflex. Where does that come from? Because they haven't had dinner with me. They haven't like, they don't know that I've taught 22,000 kids K through 12. They don't know that I'm a father. You know what I'm saying? They don't know that I'm an educator and, a, and an activist, but they want to grab their baby. And that comes from the fact that black people are 3% of advertisements. And these are over-sexualized black women. These are athletes, you know, which arguably scare people too, because they're really big. And these are fake gangster rappers. So we have these three corporations that make all their money from suburban white kids who want to see this fake gangster, you know, Scarface type narrative. So they just feed the testosterone or like pump the blood, I guess, right? But what do you think it is? It's mostly white men as well. And, you know, I think I think one of the ways we see the problems with this is that people like me, we buy hip hop to, to that, that resonates with who we are. Yeah. So when people of color own hip hop, we had many different representations of women, for example. Right. We had Queen Latifah, MC Light, Moni Love. We had the boss. Right. We had all these different lanes and young girls and boys could see different iterations of women within hip hop culture. And that's because different people wanted different types of women personalities. So there were different economic niches 
where women could be successful. So there's different identities that were accessible to the young girls who were trying to figure out who they wanted to be. Now, since 70% of hip hop is bought by suburban white men, we only have one economic niche that these suburban white men want to see. And that's Cardi B and Nicki Minaj. And they got (laughs) to fight each other over that paycheck because it's the same thing. So, you know, when we are selling this culture extra communally, we're selling the worst examples and ideas of blackness to a community that arguably is going to control whether or not we get to have efficacy getting jobs and getting health care and going to jail and seeing a judge. So what we're doing is fighting for our culture for two reasons. Number, I think the second secondary reason is I would love to be able to come to the dinner table, sing Kumbaya and not scare the hell out of every other white person that crosses my path in liberal Bay Area. Right. Yeah. And that's just a secondary goal, because I think primary goal is that, you know, hip hop is not just the black thing. It's, it's for everybody. You know, mm. it's, you know, the tenants of hip hop are peace, love, unity and having fun. So, yeah, we've never had a problem with white folks being able to rap or anybody being able to rap. And that's why hip hop is for everybody. So my primary focus is to make sure that our young kids who are hip hop cultured, our OGs who are hip hop cultured, have a stable base of self-determination where in which they can access their culture and be empowered through their culture to make it in this crazy world, right? Whether you're a hip hop artist and you don't want to work at Starbucks all day and hopefully have energy enough afterwards to go work on your craft, but you can go be a hip hop mentor and get a paycheck in healthcare to teach kids how to break dance and get stronger proprioception and neuromuscular junctions. And then those kids go on and start talking about body health and then they become vegan and stuff like that. You know, this is what we do. So I think these young kids need to know they can make it to Carnegie Hall with a set of turntables or they can make it to Carnegie Hall with their raps or they Mm -hmm. can, you know, be Basquiat or they can be the next Monet with stenciling and wheat pasting. You know, I I think that we need to make sure that in in a world where Black kids have half the access to art classes as white kids in a world where we don't have culturally responsive pedagogy, pedagogy, and in a world where, where we don't see ourselves reflected in any positive way, hip hop is there for us. And hip hop has this ingrained nugget that's just in the DNA of hip hop of self-affirmation. And for mm. some of these kids, that's some of the first time they get to play around with the concept of self-affirmation. So I know what hip hop does for kids in the hood. And I'm trying to make sure that everybody knows that too, so they can invest in it. And our kids can get this self-propelled pedagogy that'll take them to the stars and also make them believe they're worth it at the same time. So that's that's what we're doing at Hip Hop for Change. I can tell you the minutia and the tactics and the strategies, but we're trying to create that base of self-determination because hip hop is positive. It is, it's the, it's the catalyst for, for self-determination, for fighting oppression, for for self-efficacy and self-love, it, it just, it, it is what it is. It comes from an unbroken chain of black, blackness, just trying to make sure that black people know we're beautiful from mm-hmm. call and response in the fields to gospel and turning Christianity into like jumping Baptist songs and then getting into jazz and then disco and soul and funk. These are all affirmations of our beauty. And that's mm-hmm. why we need this more than ever nowadays. Oh, I love that. Don't get me started. I was going to say, take a breath too. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, don't, don't stop, Kafri. That's so beautiful. I love the through lines. I'm going to try to keep this really authentic and progressive. One of the classes I took in college was called Hip Hop, Racism, and Shamanism. 
That's what it was called. Hip hop, racism and shamanism. And it was all about like, what is the culture here that we have painted it to be? What is it actually? Who are the grandfathers and mothers of this culture? How has it been perpetuated? What does the media say? And it was one of the most eye-opening conversations or classes I've ever had. And it was just so much fun. And what I loved about that was that it was fun. It was like, you know, let's learn together and let's not vilify just because you're all a group of white people. I mean, surely there were there. This is probably one of the most diverse classes in that school because everybody was like, I want to take that. And, you know, but it was really like, Hey, let's not vilify anybody. Let's just have a conversation here and say, Hey, you're coming from where you're coming from. And most of that is shoved down your throat from the media. It's not coming from your internal heart of hatred or prejudice or color or discrimination. It's coming from a place of, how should we buy? How should we consume? How should we talk? How should we interact? How should we dress? You know, it's all yeah. the things you hit on early on and trying to say, hey, let's celebrate this and let's demystify the stigmas and the challenges between the races. Like right now, it's just so important to me that we have awkward conversations and yes. that we just make them like not awkward because it's like it's life. You're not the one who created the whole system. Don't feel bad. You don't have to own it. Well, you know, I've been telling people, and I think we need to get comfortable being uncomfortable because it is awkward. And I don't think there's a problem with awkwardness, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think we push back from awkwardness so much that at one point in time, I didn't want to learn about patriarchy because it was awkward and uncomfortable to come to the realization that I'd been oppressive for so long, right? Mm -hmm. But I think to try to deny that awkwardness and the necessity of that awkwardness is the thing that stops things often, right? It's kind of like the white moderate that Martin Luther King wrote about in the letter from a Birmingham jail. Like, what what do you want me to do, man? Like, this is bad, you know? So we've got to speak to these these awkwardnesses. And, and, you know, I think one of the, the biggest things in teaching hip hop is to teach people that they get to partake in this space, right? Yeah. It's always awkward to say, yo, I don't get to freestyle, you know? Yeah. Uh, I know this is not my 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 place. And I do seminars for like, you know, I just did uh, one for UC Santa Cruz. So okay. the room for like 30 to 50, mostly white, mostly Asian people. And I got them all freestyle in front of everybody. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I go into this room and people are like, I'm not rapping. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and I'm like, no, you're going to rap, right? Because when somebody asks you to write poetry, no one says, oh, I'm not a poet, right? People right. are like, oh, I can write a couple of rhymes down, sure. you know? But people think that in order to be hip hop, the first thing I need to do is like slouch, right? And then <laughs> think about having a bad credit score. And then if I don't feel like That's I'm the hard. dopest, then I don't get to come in and rap about, you know, how much I hate this person. And if I can't embody that space, there's like no reason for me to step in there. And that's the problem. People assume that in order to, to engage in hip hop art, they have to approach it from this pathological like mind frame, right? And, and, and I think that's a sentiment more about who they think we are than what they know about the art form. So by the time I get to teach people about hip hop culture and what it really is and how loving it is and how yeah. accepting it is, you know, yeah. and how everybody has equal access to this free vehicle of expression and people open up and next thing I know they're rapping about Trump and they're rapping about, I don't know, Bernie Sanders or they're <laughs> rapping about environmentalism and whatever. And it becomes yeah. a beautiful space where people think, wow, 
how come I didn't do this before? What stopped yeah. me? And so yeah. when you talk about like hip hop and shamanism, it reminds me of my homie who used to talk about the circle and how everybody's equidistant and there's four corners and you have breaking that represents the wind and graffiti that represents the, the rock and all this. He used to go deep into it. Ooh, I've never heard that. I like that. Oh, yeah. People get really deep into it because, again, like this is culture. And so yeah. there's people who are using hip hop in the therapeutic sense. There are people who are using hip hop in the legal space uh-huh. to help people with their contracts. I think the most important thing is that hip hop is so much. It represents everything that we are as people. Yeah. And everything that we are as people can be expressed through hip hop culture. So yeah. I'm to advocate, you know, you want kids to shine and, and you want kids to try to be successful. Like, give them the tools. And in our culture, that usually comes with the swag that is taught through hip-hop. Okay, so teach me, teach the audience, like, what would be the foundation of how would you rap? Like, what would be the first step for, like, just do it like a, yeah, okay, first you turn your hat back. (laughs) You kind of just had the first part, right? The first part, and usually when I teach this class, the first thing that I'd say like when I first get up is I'm going to teach you that you can freestyle and I'm going to prove to you that you can freestyle in two minutes. And the reason you think you can is due to white supremacy. That's okay. the first thing I usually say in my class and people go, Oh, wow. And it really is that because people don't try because they think you have to come from this ghetto thug place or else you don't get to be in that space. Right. So we have to dispel that myth. I'm going to do this. Let's try this. Let's have a kind of thought experiment and analyze this conversation. Did you write down anything that you said to me in this conversation? I have written down a handful of notes. Most of them I haven't said yet. So, but did you write anything down word for word, like line? No. So you freestyled this entire thing, right? Yeah. So it's impromptu off the cuff. So you have a train of thought and you can do that without stopping or stuttering as long as you're comfortable, right? Yes. Yes, hundred percent. That's the way I live my life too, for better or worse. (laughs) I've been told sometimes, maybe think a little bit more. (laughs) Don't just go. (laughs) Okay, I'm I'm definitely familiar with the taste of my foot, so (laughs) the taste of my foot has become familiar to me too. The most important thing about freestyling is to know that you have an internal monologue that can go on almost without like the need to focus too hard, right? So what's uh, so the difference have, between like a freestyle and just a dialogue or like a, a riffing or somebody spouting off their beliefs? Here's the question. What rhymes with house? Mouse. What rhymes with free? Me. What rhymes with throw? Bow. Word. So you just rhymed and you rhymed. I think the longest it took you was probably three seconds, right? Three full one one thousands, right? When I freestyle, I don't even have to rhyme that often, right? I can just keep going and going until my mind gets lost in a thought and gets tossed in this whirling motion where I'm looking inside these lines like the ocean. And sometimes at times and times I get frozen. But if I keep throwing these dimes and these dimes that I'm throwing, Eventually, I'll be chilling in my boat, rowing and rowing. (laughs) And hopefully your mind will get blowing and blowing. So I don't have to rhyme that much. I just have to stay conscious of what's coming up next. Uh Because the only thing I'm thinking about is that word next. So I can rhyme with it next and flex. Uh Right. So if I can just stay on time, I won't get vexed. Right. (laughs) It's like it's you just going and you keep it in your mind. So it's not difficult, right? It's more like I have to be comfortable. And it's more like, yeah, if you try too hard, 
you'll just be too rigid. And then yeah. it's, it's really difficult to try to make up stuff consciously while you're just trying to flow. And you really have to just let yourself flow. That's so wonderful. You had the biggest grin on my face right there. Thank you for that. So one of the things that I was thinking about as you were rapping or free flowing, I should say, and you're like, it's not that hard. You just have to start like, here's some tricks, like start thinking ahead. Think about rhyming. Think about like comfort. The part that hooked for me was comfort. And what's important is that I'm not feeling like we have enough, we're giving our youth and adults tools to be confident enough. You know, even adults, forget the kids, you know, let's talk about just society at large. We're giving them a lot of information. Are we giving them enough paths of creative expression and empowerment and communication and confidence so that they're not having micro acts of aggression. They're using their creative outlets to do their expression and then come back with more thoughtfulness. What's your take on that? And like, how have you seen rap, hip hop culture, free flowing style, like how has that changed confidence levels or expression and what's the impact of it? There's a reason I've taught 22,000 kids K through 12 with hip hop culture, you know what I'm saying? There's a reason why people call me back and say, please, t- here, you can have the kids, take them. Good. Uh, because it's because it works, you know what I'm saying? These kids are primed to yeah. learn through hip hop. And the most important thing that I need to, to, to address is it's not about confidence because we want them to, to end with confidence, but it's about getting comfortable, Comfort. just fine, being awkward, right? Like, I don't know how to do a breakdance move and I'm going to hurt myself, but I'm going to keep trying because it's fun being awkward and just trying. And, yeah. and there's camaraderie in being together in a space and just trying, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's camaraderie and being up on a, on a microphone and wrapping your heart out and knowing that the crowd supports you because you're trying, you know what I'm yeah. saying? So it's, it's not about confidence, right? Confidence comes later. It's about confidence in your community. It's about uh-huh. confidence in your ability to just be you. And that's that awkwardness. That's that that's that awkward confidence. That because I'm never comfortable freestyling. I wasn't comfortable freestyling when I just did. You I weren't. Like, I hope I come up with these rhymes, but I don't mind putting myself on the line because it's kind of fun. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's what I like teaching. Like this is a space of play. This is a space yeah. of you know, not taking yourself so seriously. And for a lot of these kids who grow up in the hood, like number one. They need to relax. Like 30% of kids in Oakland have been diagnosed with PTSD, which is a higher rate than vets coming back from war. Wow, that's a stat. 30% of kids growing up in Oakland have been diagnosed with PTSD, which is more than the stats of vets coming back from Iraq. Yeah. I wanted to underline that. That's incredible. And most of those kids don't look like you, sister. You know what I'm saying? So, and most of these kids don't have access to art class, you know? And, and I'm not saying that hip hop has changed his class is therapeutic because in order to be therapeutic, you have a lot of boxes that need to be checked in order to not play around with terms like that. Okay. But I see, I see when I see a young girl and she's rapping and she's like, I don't really know what to rap about because I don't want to rap about all the stuff I see. And I'm like, yo, sis, you rap about who you are. And then when she really gets that, she starts rapping. She's like, I'm a queen. Ain't no man going to tell me nothing. I'm going to make it to the top. And, and, and it's this wonderful realization that, hey, I can be in a space of self-affirmation, even if I'm not even sure of it. You know, I'm just going to play around with this concept. And that was the first time I started going from, you know, this male toxic understanding of how to be powerful as a black man 
to really be like, no, I actually don't like police brutality. And I'd rather talk about that than talk about some money that I don't have or some girls yeah. that don't like me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> or I want to talk about this, you know, toxic Superfund site, the Navy Hunters Point shipyard that I grew up right next to that's killing people in my neighborhood. That stuff resonated with me a lot more than these fake lies that I was taught that I should talk about. So mm. when you get these kids to this point where they start toying with the idea of introspection, mm. that's so deep, especially for kids who have been told that they're not worthy their whole lives in every way society can tell them. And now they're playing around with this thing that is just straight up designed and built to take kids who have been told they're nothing to get them to a place of believing they're everything and worthy. Mm. That's what hip hop is about. It's about, I get to stand up proud. I get to stand here and stand up strong. You might not dance like this, but I do, damn it. You know what I'm saying? You might not like this graffiti here, but this is what we like. And we're going to do it come hell or high water, literally risking our freedom to be artists and to have our name go all around the city on a train because that's the only time we get recognized. Mm -hmm. And that's such a deep place for me. You know what I'm saying? These people see pathology, they see kids you know, messing up their city. And I see kids who are yearning for some some self-efficacy and the mm-hmm. idea that they are somebody, you know what I'm saying? And while a bunch of people might be at the MoMA sipping their wine with their pinkies up looking at paintings, you see these kids at train stations with their maybe 40s, you know, maybe their joint watching their, their pieces going by, talking about chiaroscuro and different techniques and stuff mm-hmm. like that and their political, you know, impact statements and whatnot. We're no different. It's just my kids get arrested sometimes for doing the same stuff that people in other communities get every opportunity in the world to make it to. Have a sanctified platform, right? So I'm building this base of self-determination that's raised for almost $4 million in seven and a half years. It's employed over almost a thousand people from my community to be hip hop activists. That's got people up on stages that gets artists fingerprinted, TV tested, trauma informed and gets them in schools with the general liability insurance so they can go be mentors and get paid for it. And we can go canvas and have the permits where police officers can't arrest us for selling CDs on the streets like they do on Hate Street right now. Hip Hop for Change can sell our CDs on the streets. Well, not sell, but we can create this economy. So essentially what I've done is I've learned how to protect hip hop and hip hoppers doing the stuff that we've done the whole time at risk of our safety. Mm-hmm. I've figured out a way to, to accrue, uh, you know, a massive amount of funds, uh, you know, for self-determination without doing federal time <laughs> in the yeah. penitentiary. You know what I'm saying? I've created a platform that's going to protect us and taking our culture back. And I'm, I'm welcoming anybody listening to this to join the fight with us. So, I love that welcome. I love the call to action. So how are you working with police and with activists and policy change and advocacy to actually create a space that is safe and to change the dynamics so that we're not throwing kids in jail for creative expression? Everything costs money. So fortunately, I was fortunate enough to learn a really great skill set, an organizing skill set from Greenpeace. I was their first black city coordinator that ran their fundraising department. Yeah. Learned how to run a whole grassroots fundraising street team. And when I started Hip Hop for Change, I was able to just start literally with a clipboard on Hate Street. And I raised 26 grand by myself my first year moving a mixtape of homies. And I incorporated, I figured out how to make a website and don't ever want to do 501c3 paperwork again. Me either. Yeah, right. And then I got my, my first co-workers. You know, we've been raising money ever since. And that grassroots means of fundraising has allowed us 
to have a lot of sovereignty and creating a strong movement that we believe is strong, not having to, you know, go to foundations initially and say, hey, here, is this good enough for y'all? Yeah. And, and do that philanthropic stratification of, of the means and who needs what. There's this big disconnect where organizations of the bottom, number one, for every hundred grand that we're raising, we're creating $10,000 in deficit just because most organizations don't really know how to incorporate all their costs and grants, right? Right. Who's giving the grants out? It's people who get to decide whether or not I'm doing the right thing for brown and black people in hip hop culture. <laughs> like, you know, so it's difficult when every time we have to write a, a grant to a foundation, we have to affirm that hip hop is worthy of being even thought about before mm. we can tell what we're trying to do programmatically. So being able to have this grassroots street fundraising model has been able to has allowed us to be super independent, mm-hmm. super in the creation of this organization. So we don't punches for anybody our uniform says in white supremacy on it and we stand out there strong we don't have to bend over our vow or change our mission just for foundational support we're independent and through that grassroots activism we've been able to employ over almost a thousand activists with a living wage and access to health care yeah that's how hip-hop for change started initially it was just to raise funds so we could throw fat shows and get local artists paid and we do that really well we have our women's empowerment summit every year our environmental equity summit every year and through that, we're not charging people from the community 30 or $40 to see a big artist like Talib Kweli. We're actually getting these organizations that talk a good diversity and inclusion game like Sierra Club or 350.org, and they put up the money initially for the entire platform. So we book Talib Kweli, and then it's free in all ages for the community that needs to have that, that, that you know, release, that relief. Mm-hmm from the stresses of life. So now we have an environmental equity summit headlined by Talib Kweli that's free for all the little babies and all the grandmas. And then we invite all the local eco-justice orgs to come table and they fill up the panel discussion so people are learning about local environmental issues and getting connected to black and brown people that the environmental sector arguably has a hell of a time getting connected to for some weird reason, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we do shows like that, but it, it, you know, it was, it was about a year before people started asking me, do you teach, do you teach, do you teach? And I had to develop the whole curriculum, the MC program to actually teach kids the history of hip hop and then teach them how to break rap, do graffiti and then DJ. So we're kicking butt. We're building these platforms. Um, COVID has changed most of that for right now, but you know, we're going strong, we're going real strong. So I, what I, are you doing now during COVID times to fundraise um, yeah. and share the art too? Yeah, right when COVID started, you know, we had to unfortunately furlough 34 of our grassroots officers, you know, Mm. 40 conversations a day and then every week coming back into the meeting all together is not safe. So we lost 85% of all of our fundraising ability overnight. And fortunately, our grassroots staff were able to get unemployment. So they were taken care of. It was still emotional. It was draining (laughs) and we're just actually starting to get back with that. Um, we also lost all our education contracts the same week. And so that was difficult. And, you know, we've been able to pivot to an online platform that we've created, which has allowed us to continue uh, educating over a thousand kids this year alone. Probably we'll hit 2000 by the end of the year. But the hard part was our local artist educators that are on contract. And a lot of them weren't eligible in their own lives for unemployment. So you know, the reason why we were doing this online coursework is to create, you know, the opportunity to pay people to produce video content for the online platform to get these artists paid still. Because 
man, if you're a DJ, like right now, like what do you do? What do you do if your main trade is being a DJ? You know, I, even one of my skater homies who teaches kids skateboarding, he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do during the winter because it rains. You need ways to, to stay alive as local artists. And it's, it's more important than ever. You know, I saw this thing talking about sectors of industries that need help. And the last sector people are thinking about right now is the arts. Yes, the, that's right. Like we're the culture bearers. We're the ones yeah. that, 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 you know, are tuning the trumpets of war first. The artists yep. are. And so, I, you know, if anybody's listening out there, you know, when George Floyd and all that happens, like think of the local black artists as well as the black organizations, you know, doing political work too. think of the artists that are going to galvanize the people into that sharp spear so they can go forth, especially in cultures like mine. It's the local artists. They're the ones that are the community leaders the most. So everybody can use your help. <laughs> you know, if yeah. you're going to look nonprofit to donate to type in hip hop and there's hip hop nonprofits all around the nation that could use your help right now. Yeah. So what's your take on the politics right now and the Black Lives Matter movement? And there's been a lot of scrutiny about its efficacy and the intention behind it is one thing and then how it's been displayed is another. What are your thoughts? Oh, I'm glad you asked this. So I actually, uh, I run a radio show every Sunday that plays nothing but local Bay Area hip hop artists. Oh yeah. What's that station? 89.5 89.5 FM, KPOO, San Francisco. It's Hip Hop for Change Radio. And, you know, this all came up in the Black community around Black Lives Matter when George Floyd happened. So I had a whole radio show about this. I had people from all around calling in. Uh, and I had a really good discussion with some people who were there when Black Lives Matter was started. And, you know, my whole thing is this. First things first, Black Lives Matter is a group that was started by three women of color. And those women are badass leaders in the community, right? They're trained in lots of political theories, including Marxism, which I also studied Marxism in political science class. And they have good things in there you should probably know about, right? If you want to like analyze different kinds of political structures. But there's also the colloquialism, Black Lives Matter, right? And so we, we have that as a rallying cry as Black people, as people fighting against police brutality as well, which is, uh, you know, a diverse group of people. So we have to differentiate that. And a lot of the times when, you know, I'm, I'm actually, I like Glenn Beck's fan page on Facebook because I just like to see what other you know people are talking about. Yeah. And my uh, rhetorical sword sometimes too. <laughs> exactly. A lot of fun. But, you know, I think one of the major conflations that, you know, our right wing brothers and sisters use is conflating the movement with the colloquialism and the call to action. So we got to make sure that we separate those two. And when we're talking about Black Lives Mattering and Black people screaming that, I support any chant that Black people need to scream out to resolve their feelings of anger about white supremacy. Whatever you need to scream, Black brothers and sisters, scream it. You have all right to it. I don't even care if it's the wrong thing technically. You have no obligation to be perfect with your anger against white supremacy. So there's that. Secondarily, we have the movement. And that movement was started by, you know, some people. And there are some critiques against those that, that movement. Number one is not tapping in with some of the activists that have been doing a lot of the work. That was one of the mm-hmm. major things that I heard being said about this. And mind you, this is not my experience. This is what I've heard. So mm-hmm. I had people saying, yo, because Alicia Garza, Patrice Colors, and Opal, they, they, they had a big microphone instantly because of that hashtag. And so they were able to do a lot 
with a little bit. And mm-hmm. so they kind of went their own way. And some people will say that they did not take the time to, to build up, you know, with the people who have been doing the work already. And some of those people feel it was stepped on. And I think that, that you know, you're never wrong addressing things like that, addressing people's concerns. I can't make a value judgment on it because I wasn't there. And mm-hmm. that's it. Now, there's another thing is that I have a lot of Black people being like, yo, what are they doing? They're not doing anything. They're breaking up the family, right? Because they talk about a lot of LGBTQAI rights. Uh, uh-huh. They talk about killing the patriarchy. And a lot of Black people have the critique that they did not mention the Black family or the father. Because they talk about, you know, protecting the mother and the family and, you know, the children, but they didn't mention the father. And that's one sticking point a lot of Black people have. Like, yo, we're losing our family unit. And there's a big conversation between homophobia in the Black community and talking about literally Black people being emasculated by white supremacy historically, right? And sexuality and rape being used against Black men to disempower them. That is a history that has been there. And so there's a lot of tension in the Black community between where understanding that comes from and dealing with that and also where loving LGBTQAI, you know, brothers and sisters and where homophobia starts that has not been totally dealt with. So Mm. that's a big part of that too, that I think that Black Lives Matter needs to focus on because when you are a figurehead in the community, your job is to be responsive to your community. Mm-hmm. And now that Black Lives Matter gets a lot of money, you know, in 2019, they gave, I think it was $980,000 to different black and brown organizations that are fighting for social justice to stop police brutality. So I've been advocating for people to actually read into them. They're doing great work, you know, and now they have hella money, you know. <laughs> so now the conversation is a little bit different. It's kind of like how I feel about Greenpeace, you know, yeah. Greenpeace is so big. They're not this, you know, hippie granola movement anymore. Yeah. A powerhouse that is to be held accountable. You yeah. know what I'm saying? And Black Lives Matter having $100 million in your coffers means that you are not a Black person anymore. You're not a group of Black people, you know, fighting a good fight. You are now a bureaucratic entity that speaks for Black people. And you have hella money. So you're automatically suspect, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so proven innocent. That's really important. When you have $100 million, your job is to be transparent. And it's not that they get any trust. It's past trust. It's like you got $100 million, you better show and prove uh, we're taking you to tax. So that's how I feel about Black Lives Matter. They got some explaining to do because they got $100 million. But those three women that started that movement, man, I, I I can't show appreciation enough to them for what they dealt with as, as women of color, getting death threats, dealing with the misogynoir that they're dealing with as three black women, you know, the homophobia, you know, just, just dealing with, with all the issues that black people are chewing on as a community, those women are dealing with it. So my hat's off to those three and the organization. I, I, I wish the best for them. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. As I'm thinking about the year coming to an end and how COVID has impacted you and the organization, I should say, what is your best call to action for anybody who is trying to get involved and understand how to end white supremacy, how to support the arts, how to figure out what organization is the best organization to fund? Do you have thoughts on that? I do. I think it's hip hop for change. <laughs> Let me just put it simply. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, of course, I, I, I really, I, I'm biased, you know, when it comes to my thoughts about hip hop culture. But 
I don't know anything that gets young black and brown kids to think that they're cool more than hip hop does, faster uh-huh. than hip hop does. I don't know anything that gets young black and brown and, and you know, little white kids as well, you know, just just focused on community and like and sharing their own authentic self. Like yeah. Like takes off the veil of male toxicity faster than I think real understanding of what hip hop can do, and I don't know of a community that needs its its angels more right now than the hip hop community. I don't know a community that needs to see artists like Coco Pela and Ryan Nicole and Charity Clay and Kayla Love and Aaliyah Sharif and these badass women who are speaking fire right now about mm-hmm. police brutality, about misogyny, about capitalism, and about Oakland and San Francisco. Like these young girls, and I'm telling you, I don't know if I can stop white, white supremacy, but I can definitely end some of it for our communities here in the Bay Area. You know, I definitely can connect some of these young girls to some of the most empowering voices ever through our Women's Empowerment Summit. And mm-hmm. we started COVID-19 with a really huge monthly donor base, and that has been cut down by 25% which we relied on that monthly donor base to pay our operating expenses. It's funny, mm-hmm. and it's really a, a hard pill, uh, it's really bittersweet that when George Floyd got murdered by that police officer, white America realized that they should give and support black struggles. And we got a really big influx of money for our studio. We're building a free studio that's gonna be uh, free for kids under 24, state of the art. Uh, it's gonna help kids learn beat making, production, podcasting, and all the stuff in between, as well as rapping. It's gonna be a great resource. And we got a lot of money to build that studio and to work on our online course and curriculum, the programmatic work. But now that we're seven months into our monthly donor-based dwindling, we find ourselves underwater and trying to figure out how to pay our operating expenses so we can do the great work that we're flushed with cash for. Yeah. So I'm in this unique situation. I don't think there's ever been a time for our culture bearers to be more supportive than now. Like this is the time to make sure that these people who are, are who are the ones that inspire the hell out of our kids more than anybody. Yeah. Our kids already want to follow. Like that's how we lead our kids into that bright, shiny future where their backs are straight. They know their worth and they're not taking any more of this damn white supremacy lying down. It's because they hear people like me, like Marlon, unlearn the world, like, you know, like all the cool people in our community that stand up and have done it in a way that we don't have to code switch and we don't have to bow down and we don't have to do some crappy job. We don't want to. I want to ask a couple of questions that are around funding. So what's your operating budget? What's your need and what's your growth strategy? So my first year, 26 grand. And it's kind of interesting because I can't really project a budget. It's mostly based on how many people we have uh, employed, how many people we can get trained up. And so my second year, we raised 183. And then I think it was 363 and then 514. It's on our website under our annual budget. I have all that stuff there. And I think last year we hit a little over $700,000. This year was projected to hit, we we're projected to break a million. We we're supposed to wow. hit 1.2 million and open up a second office in LA. Yeah. Uh, which would have probably brought us to over a 1.5 uh-huh. uh, budget. But COVID 19 kind of took a number on us. But I think we're still going to be breaking 600. I think we've broken 600 grand this year with just our work and our wiggling and trying to fundraise and keep people employed and invested in. So our operating budget is. I think in a regular year, it would be about 
a little over 700,000. Okay. Right on. And so what is your growth plan? Do you have a growth plan for how you want to expand? You know, I've, I've heard about the studio, which is a big part. And now the second office down in LA and continuing getting activists out there, obviously pivoting to go online. Like what can we as the audience think about in terms of your future and how we can support it? So I said, join the fight for our culture. That's our tagline. And I'm not saying join the fight for us to do cool stuff in Oakland or the Bay Area. Like I'm trying to take hip hop back. Hip hop is a global industry right now. So when we talk about where hip hop for change is going, it's across the thing that's rotating behind me in the background. All right. You know, you know, when I when I stopped working for Greenpeace, I think they had around four. 14 offices open and they were pulling in around 30 million a year in grassroots fundraising. I could only imagine if I had $30 million a year to teach babies they were beautiful with hip hop culture. I only imagine if I had $30 million to initially invest in our events. And so we didn't have to scrounge to have our women's empowerment summit every year. We open up LA, right? Here in here in the Bay Area, we've been able to create a donor base of 18,000 individual public donors each year. We've been able to employ a a little over 100 activists every single year. We've been able to teach 8,000 students in the Bay Area last year and, you know, hold these hip-hop shows and create this whole movement with a radio show and hopefully a studio. So when we open up L.A., we'll have the same thing down there for those kids as well. And now, instead of just throwing a show up here, we'll be throwing a tour, right? When we open up Hip-Hop for Change, Portland that has a hip hop scene that needs us in Portland and LA and San Diego. And now I can have my women's empowerment summit going up and down the coast, right? And every major metropolis that has a large black population, I think they need hip hop for change too. I think Chicago needs us, right? Mm-hmm. Baltimore needs us, DC, right? Philadelphia, Miami, Dade. I, I can do this everywhere. You know, I can do this in Mexico City just like I can do this in Manila. So I, I'm not stopping. Next year, we're opening up Hip Hop for Change in LA, then Atlanta, then New York, and the next, we're taking over the world. That's, that's what I'd like to do. And, and you know, I don't, I don't mind giving up the game, so to speak, or telling people why I think we can battle the industry, because we're doing something that an industry can't do. If I book an artist like uh, Most Death or Erica Badu, that artist has a radius clause. And that means that they can't rap in the Bay Area six months before, six months after, or three months. Usually it's a three months radius clause. So make sure that people can't book an artist the day after your show so you get your money taken. Right. right. Or, you know, and so when Talib Kweli or, you know, Erica Badu comes to the Bay Area, there's only two or three companies that even work with artists like that out here. Mm. And those companies have so much money, they can, there's not much risk for them to throw all these shows all over. Mm -hmm. Usually for people like me, it's like throwing up my life savings in a Texas Hold'em hand uh, when I throw (laughs) a show, right? So it's this really hard thing to break in. Also, when you're hip hop, I have to pay almost 200% higher special event insurance permit rates because I'm hip hop. If I had, you know, we tried to do this show, it was a gospel rap contest and we were quoted $2,000 for a one day permit. And the budget for the show was only a thousand. Oh my gosh. And then I said, yo, it's a gospel show. They said, oh, oh, well then it's just $200. And I was like, are you kidding me? Wow. that, That doesn't stop hip hop from happening. It stops people like me and my community from being able to do hip hop in this white supremacist world. Cause I have to get special event permit insurance or else cops will arrest us and ticket us and all that other stuff that comes with it. Right. So these are the things and the issues that we face. So when we can throw these shows and events as a 501 C three, we can protect ourselves 
And we get to book that artist. And when that artist gets the same amount of money from me or this big old for-profit company that doesn't care, but they know that their efforts are going to go towards teaching babies that they're beautiful, who do you think that artist is going to want to work with? Yeah. Right? And, and that's something that these corporations can't do. They can't have a free show that's all ages every day of the week. You know, they won't be able to have the same cultural authenticity that's going to hopefully get artists like Immortal Technique and Most Deaf and, you know, Talib Kweli and The Roots to eventually want to only work with an organization like Hip Hop for Change if I can get it that big. So what I'm trying to do is to create that basis self-determination in every major black and brown community, every major hip hop touring city in the nation. So when people want to work with positive hip hop, they don't work with corporations, three of them. They work with a 501c3 or the community. And Mm -hmm. it makes sure that the money and the buck stops with our people, not people that are vultures and taking advantage of of this criminalizing narrative. So I'm trying to take the world over. (laughs) (laughs) You are you're so magnanimous and articulate. And I I, you just keep stumping me. I rarely feel so stumped in an interview. Thank you. Thank you for your performance. What can I do to help you? I mean, I'm, I'm really glad to like share this with all of my community. I love what you do. I love what you're all about. And I just, you know, I can feel the love, the, the power, the progress, the hope, you know, that's so important to me. So for me, it resonates with me on a human level, but like, how could I help you? You know, I'm a strategic fundraiser consultant. I do help a lot of organizations with thinking about their leadership structures, their board members, their applications to foundations, you know, maybe we could re recreate that narrative in your head, but you know, is there anything in like two minutes or one minute that I can help you with on the air? And if not, like maybe offline. A nonprofit only needs two things, money and awareness. That's (laughs) it, right? When it comes down to it, we've done a lot of work on our board and what a hip hop board looks like. So I got Mm. that covered. Our leadership is, you know, I've never seen such a motivated team. And our grant writer, Hema, is on fire with our other grant writer, Rosa yeah, Boche. Yeah. So we're, we're good there, you know what I'm saying? Um, but, you know, what I need the most is people to know about us right now, to be yeah. aware that we really do need people's support. Right now, we've lost 25% of our monthly donor base. So how do I tell 20,000, you know, like loving people that, hey, I need you to donate eight bucks a month or more, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. To make yeah. sure little brown babies know that they're beautiful and their culture is beautiful and they can hip hop all the way to Carnegie Hall. Yeah, we need support. We need people to get on our website, hiphopforchange.org and subscribe to our newsletter so they can know what we need all the time. So they nice. can see these babies, you know, and be inspired by the work that's coming out and seeing transitional age youth rapping about what they need to be and what they want to be when they grow up. And we need people to, to organize their own networks to know about us too. So share our stuff, follow us on social media. When you see Hip Hop for Change post, post too. Yeah, we really need people to give us the resources to do what we do already. You know what I'm saying? It's like it's not a volunteer opportunity. We need people to give us all the money in the world. And we're literally <laughs> gonna use that dollar better than anybody you could possibly give it to. And I promise you that. When you give people the access to the most empowering culture in the world, they see their own selves in a different way, let uh-huh. alone see their community in a different way. So yeah, give us all your money. Tell everybody you know about us. And if there's anything y'all know y'all can do to help us that I haven't even thought of yet, we need that too. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Godfrey. Well, I'm like, sure, here's my savings, whatever you want. (laughs) (laughs) One lady just gave us her savings and that's why we got to the uh, 
She gave us her savings account. It got us to the point where we said, okay, we can really afford this world-class studio that's going to be a resource that's free for kids under 24. I, I couldn't imagine, like, I, the reason why I'm not famous now probably is because it took me until I was 24 to even get the access to a studio to make real music. You know what I'm saying? We're struggling. So to give kids the opportunity to actually put money behind five to ten young voices and produce their whole album, produce videos for them, put them on tour and get them a distribution deal is where we're going right now. So I'll take your savings if you want to give it to me and I'll <laughs> teach thousands of kids that they're beautiful and I'll give thousands of kids the access to a career. So yeah, you know, I just tell people when you donate a dollar bill in hip hop for change, we'll make that dollar go work harder than it's ever worked before. I love it. I love it. And then how about sponsorship opportunities? Are you doing, do you talk to corporations about sponsoring the studio or the mics or the cost? So we, we do not take corporate donations. Um, okay. And the reason why is because corporations have taken everything black people have ever made and then beat us over the head with it. Right. You know what I'm saying? And for a large part of our constituency, it's really important to know that we are financially sovereign and we're like politically separate. So we don't have you know, big corporate donors. If you see that Monsanto is the major funder of an environmental organization, you're not probably going to donate to them. Right? <laughs> yeah, That's man. Big, big authenticity issue in Black struggles. We got to make sure we don't have those ties, those connections. But we do do a lot of work with corporations sometimes, but work with uh, different orgs to help them out with their stuff, like Salesforce. They were doing stuff for their the black community in Salesforce, Bold Force, and they we did a contract and got them a bunch of hip hop artists to work. So nice. we don't mind getting gigs for people. We've worked with a lot of other nonprofits like Kaiser for their Health and Equity Summit, Space uh, Chabot Space and Science Center. We work with the Asian Art Museum all the time. And if you are a for profit company and you're trying to help. Maybe we won't take it from your entity, but we'll take it from your executive director or your founder or, you know what I'm saying, individuals. We don't mind donor advised funds. Donor advised funds are great as well. But it, it is a unique experience to not take corporate donations. It makes it a little bit more difficult, but it, it's most important to make sure that our community knows that we are not messing around. And we're not here for play. And we are 100% sovereign for our goals and for our mission. So, yeah, another reason why we need people to support us. I love it. Well, I have all the trust in the world that you are going to continue to change the faces of all the babies out there and all the grandmas and grandpas. And I love what you're doing. I love how you're inviting us all to just play and to create and to get involved. So thank you for your time. Thank you for your lessons. Thank you for your offering. Thank you for your life's work and service. I appreciate you. And I'm really happy to share this with my community. And I hope that people do go and support Hip Hop for Change. Yeah, awesome. Hiphopforchange.org, y'all. 2020s recipients of the Ellen Magnum Newman Award from the SF Symphony. Rock with us. Yes. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Creating Community for Good podcast. If you like what you heard, let me know. Send me a message on LinkedIn or write a review on Apple Podcasts. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. If you're curious about a topic or you'd like to be a guest, let's connect. Go to www.creatingcommunityforgood.com. In there, you will see all of the podcast episodes with beautifully written show notes and hyperlinks to everything that we've discussed. Thank you and shine on. With this latest valuable episode, we'd love to thank you for joining us on the Creating Community for Good podcast. If you found today's show valuable, simply visit our website, creatingcommunityforgood.com 
to leave a review as well as to get access to additional resources and relevant links from this show. Stay tuned for more episodes.